Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's uh, nice to be with you all today. Um, I have a, something that I want to share with you today about Christ and discipleship. And uh, let's see if I can get this little doodad working. Maybe not. Give one more try. Hey. There we go. Okay. All right. So I want to talk to you guys about Christ and discipleship. Um, hopefully, uh, I, I kind of have enough time to go through all of this. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me just kind of begin by um, giving a little bit of an overview about where I'm trying to go and what it is that I want us to talk about and to think about today. Um, so the, the thing that I want to talk about is Jesus's role in discipleship since he was fully human. So now Jesus is fully God, right? And he also became fully man. And it's important that we hold to both of those, um, right? A lot of the early church um, kind of really focused on how to properly affirm both of these. We get ourselves into a whole lot of trouble if we deny Jesus's divinity, um, and we also get ourselves into trouble if we deny Jesus's humanity. Jesus um, didn't just appear to be a human. He actually became one. He became one of us. And that has huge impl uh, implications for how we understand discipleship. Um, and I think that probably, like, for us, uh, for most modern Christians, right, we don't have too much trouble understanding um, why it's important uh, that we affirm Jesus's divinity, right? Because Jesus is God, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our adoration. And we are to submit ourselves to him and to subject ourselves to him. And we need to affirm properly his divinity. But I think sometimes maybe it's a little harder for us to understand how his humanity fits into the picture. Right? Uh, scripture clearly teaches that Jesus became human. Why? Why is that important? Why did God do that? How does that fit into this big picture? Um, and so that's what I really want to focus on. And so I kind of have like three things here that like probably these things will like come up like several times throughout the, uh, um, throughout the sermon. Um, but the first one, right, is that you need to learn how to live. Um, right? And you need to learn how to live as a human. Um, right? Humans have a particular situation. They have bodies. Angels don't have bodies. You don't need to know how angels live. You need to know how human beings live, right? You don't need to know how frogs live. Frogs don't have souls, um, right? There's a large number of differences between humans and frogs and horses and uh, angels and all sorts of other beings that are out there. And what you need to know is you need information for how to live your life as a person as a human, um, <clears throat> and uh, what Jesus does is he takes on that humanity and he teaches us and he shows us how to live as a human. Um, and throughout uh, church, when the, when the early church was discussing this issue of like uh, Jesus being fully God and fully man, um, there was one thinker that was like very important and influential, and his name is Gregory of Nazianzus. 
um, kind of a strange name, but he said that what was not assumed was not healed. Jesus assumes he takes on our full and complete humanity. And because he takes on our full and complete humanity, we can be fully and completely healed. Um, And we have a perfect picture of how to live. Um, And so Jesus knows how to live as a human because he's done it. Um, Right? And uh, he is, in the area of how to live like a human being, he is the master. Just like he is the master in all other things. He's the greatest mathematician. He invented math. Right? He's the greatest physicist. He invented time, matter, space, and energy. Um, He's also the greatest human. Right? He lived the perfect human life, and he did it to be our example and to pave the way for us. So that's really like kind of like uh, the sermon, like a little bit of a nutshell, um, an overview, and we'll kind of talk about those things throughout. Um, and to kind of back it up, what I want to do is I'm going to spend like a decent bit of time in Hebrews. Um, so let me talk uh, real quickly kind of about the book of Hebrews, um, because I'm going to probably be like a little rushed through it. Um, And so I just want to give us a little bit of background information that helps us to kind of see the book as a whole. Um, So first of all, just like a few couple very basic points. Um, The author of the Hebrew of Hebrews is actually unknown to us. We don't know who it is that wrote Hebrews. Um, A lot of people in the early church thought it was Paul. Some people thought it was Barnabas. Some people thought it was Luke. Um, You know, a lot of Paul's letters and Jude's letters and James letters, right? They all say, you know, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ or Jude, a brother of Jesus Christ, or James, a brother of Jesus Christ, right? Um, it kind of tells us who the author is, and that section isn't, isn't here in Hebrew. So we don't know who it is specifically that wrote it, but we know that uh, regardless of who it was, it was someone who was led and inspired by the Holy Spirit and who has a word for us. Um, and it's also important for us to probably understand who it is that this author is addressing, Um, The people that he's addressing is, maybe you guessed it, Hebrews, Um, right? He's addressing a a group of Jewish Christians. And um, it seems like there was two things that this this group of Jewish Christians was really struggling with. One, it seems like they they were struggling with um, kind of wanting to revert back to Judaism. Um, And the other thing that they were uh, struggling with was persevering, right? It looks like they were maybe growing a little lax in their faith, and they were starting to get a little slack. Um, And so the author um, throughout Hebrews is addressing these things, and he focuses on, um, right, the superiority of what we would call like Christianity, of the new covenant to the old covenant, of why these Hebrews, why these Jewish Christians shouldn't revert back to Judaism, and what it is that God is doing in bringing on this new covenant. And the other thing that he's talking about, right, is, he, is there's several warnings about falling away, warnings about growing lax in the faith, and also an encouragement to persevere, right? So we have sections in like Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 that are these warnings about falling away. And then uh, a big section in Hebrews 11 and 12, right, that that's, uh, sets these examples of the faith before us and encourages us to be like those people, to run the race, to love each other, and to fight the good fight. Um, so again, because I'm kind of going to be hopping around a little bit, I thought maybe it would be helpful if we just kind of had like a outline of the book as a whole. Um, so the sections in yellow, those are going to be the sections that we're primarily going to look at. 
Um, but again, I, I want it to be clear how it fits in this large argument. Um, so in the first chapter of Hebrews, what the author is doing is he's talking about Jesus and Jesus' superiority to the angels, right? There's strong affirmations of Jesus' divinity that, um, in that section, right? We have to affirm both of those. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Um, and so Jesus is far superior to the angels. And he warns the readers to take heed to the message, um, to commit themselves to it, to take it seriously, and to follow in uh, faith and obedience. And then he talks about Jesus greater than Moses, right? He's concerned about these Jewish Christians that are tempted to kind of go back into the old covenant, the old way of life, the old way of thinking about things. Um, and so he's concerned to emphasize Jesus is greater than the angels, Jesus is greater than, than Moses. And then he talks about disobedience and the source of rest. He talks about um, this idea that there's disobedience and unrest that the Israelite people had, and it was a huge problem, but a solution has come. A way to enter into rest has entered into human history, and he talks about that source of rest, and he talks about Jesus, the great high priest, right? This old covenant has passed away, and there's a new covenant that has come. And with that new covenant, there's a new priest. Um, there's kind of like a new sheriff in town. Um, and he talks about Jesus' role of the great high priest. Um, and then kind of later again, he talks about uh, warnings against falling away. And then he talks about Jesus being greater than Melchizedek. Um, right, But being a priest in the sort of interesting way that Melchizedek was one, um, not in terms of uh, being a Levite. And then he again, uh, the author again talks about the superiority of the new covenant. There's a call to persevere, and then there's a closing section. So that's kind of like an outline of the book as a whole. Again, we're not going to uh, cover all of that today, um, especially in 22 minutes. Um, and we're just going to focus on those, those yellow sections there. Um, but I hope that kind of having a little bit of an outline is helpful. So let's kind of start out at the beginning of the book. Um, so uh, right away, the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Something new is happening. Before, though people were spoken to through the prophets, we're now being spoken through through the Son himself. And again, right after the strong affirmations of Jesus' divinity, who is the Son? Who is God's Son that is speaking to us? He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of the universe. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being. Um, right? We're called to be reflections of God's glory. We are not his glory. Right? That is the prerogative of God alone. And that is what Jesus is. Jesus is the exact representation of his being. Jesus is God's glory. He's not a reflection of it. He's not a human. Um, he, and he's far above the angels. That's the next section that the author goes into. Um, and so the, uh, the author then warns us to pay close attention to this message. Why does he tell us to pay close attention to it? Well, one, because of the directness of the message, right? So whereas before God spoke through angels, he spoke through the prophets, now God himself is directly speaking to us. He is speaking to us through his son. Um, 
Also, the certainty of the message. How do we know that this message is true? Well, again, because it's God speaking to us, but also because we have the testimony of eyewitnesses. We have the testimony of eyewitnesses written down to us. And we also see the um, workings of the Holy Spirit, that God is confirming this message through gifts and through miracles through the Holy Spirit. So it's, we have to pay attention because of the directness of the message, the certainty of the message, but also because of the nature of the message itself. What it concerns, what it concerns is our salvation, our solution to life, our way of living, our way of getting through um, life in this world that has a tendency to kind of chew us up and beat us up, in a world in which we have made a gigantic mess of things, and other people have made a gigantic mess of things, right? It's the solution for that problem. And so it is incredibly important for us um, that we listen to that message. Um, right after this section, um, the author of Hebrews talks about the humanity of Christ. And again, that's one of the big things that we're really going to focus on. Um, here. And so in chapter 2, the author of Hebrew wants to make it very clear to us that although he's already pointed out Jesus is far superior to the angels, Jesus is God. Jesus is the exact representation of his being. He wants us to know that he became one of us. He became a man. And so in verse 11, it says, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus. That's the person who makes us holy. And those who are made holy, that's you and me, are of the same family. We're all, we all share, we all partake in human nature. As you are a human, so Jesus became human. Um, he too shared in their humanity in verse 14. Um, and he was made like his brothers in every way. I really like this verse because it has both of those um, aspects of Jesus's divinity and humanity in it, right? You weren't made, you weren't turned into a human. You are a human. You've always been a human, right? You didn't at some point, you know, on like your 13th birthday or 15th birthday or, you know, 21st birthday or whatever, adopt human nature. That is what you are. But Jesus did adopt it which means he was something before that, and he was God, right? That's what he was. So he was made like his brothers in every way, not just in some ways, but in every way, in every way that you are human, that you have to live this life um, as a human, doing what it is that humans do, right? Not as frogs, not as angels. Jesus was made like you in every way in that regards. Um, and so though he is God, um, he gives up the independent use of his divine power, right? And he takes on the nature of a slave, of a servant. That's what humans are. Humans aren't people that give orders and instructions to the universe. They're people that follow the orders and instructions of the universe. They're not people that issue commands like God gives commands. They're people who receive commands and who have to be obedient. Um, and so Jesus takes on the nature of a servant. And he doesn't speak from his own authority, right? But he only speaks what he hears from the Father. Um, and the... Kind of the main point of all of this is that Jesus didn't have some sort of advantage over you, um, right? He was made human just like you were human. Um, he set all of his divine prerogatives aside 
and adopted this lowly human nature. Um, and again, I think uh, maybe because we have a tendency so much and so often to strongly emphasize Jesus's divinity, and that is right and that is good, that I, I'm like slightly concerned that there's a few people that are like, oh, this, like, this is a little difficult for me, like hearing this talk about Jesus becoming human, of Jesus adopting the nature of a servant. Well, most of the language that I have up here is actually from Scripture. If we look at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, um, this is the J.B. Phillips translation, right? What's it say? Let Christ himself be your example. Paul is talking to the Philippians, and he says that he wants them to make his joy complete. And he wants them to do that by becoming exactly like Christ, by adopting his, um, his way of life, his approach. So let Christ be your example as to what your attitude should be. For he who had always been God, strong affirmation of Jesus' divinity, um, right? He was God by nature, did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equals but he stripped himself of all privilege. He set all of that aside temporarily by consenting to be a slave by nature, right? Not a ruler by nature, but adopting human nature, right? The nature of a slave, of a servant, of people who have to be obedient. Um, <clears throat> and he was made a more, he was uh, being born as mortal man and having become man, he humbled himself. That's not something that God has to do. God doesn't have to humble himself. Humans have to humble themselves. And when he takes on human nature, he humbles himself um, by living a, light, a life of utter obedience, utter obedience to the Father. Again, God is the person who gives orders. God doesn't have someone that he has to be obedient to. But what Jesus does is he sets those divine prerogatives aside. He sets aside his authority and he confers all of that to the Father and says in perfect obedience, in perfect submission, I will follow your will and I will do what you have to say. And he does that even to the extent of dying. And the death he died was the death of a, of a common criminal. Um, whatever it is that you have to go through, Jesus has gone through that. Um, and again, this is, um, is kind of like all throughout John as well. That language that I had of, of kind of putting aside um, his authority of not speaking from his own authority. This is just a couple kind of excerpts um, from John. So John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. As God, he has every right and every prerogative to do his own will. But he puts that aside and he does the will of him who sent me. He subjects himself to the will of the Father. Um, <clears throat> I do nothing on my own, but speak exactly what the Father has taught me. Um, uh, <clears throat> the next section, John 12, 49 to 50. Um, I have not spoken on my own authority. Jesus is God. He can speak on his own authority. Right? But he puts that aside. He puts his authority, his prerogative aside, and he becomes like you and me. And he speaks only what it is that he hears the Father speak. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and what to speak. And I know that what he commands me means eternal life. And so all that I say, I speak only in accordance with what the Father has told me. 
exactly what we are called to do and the way that we are called to be obedient and the way that we're called to do exactly what the Father does us and to not do things on our own, Jesus adopts that same attitude of humility. Um, The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own. Instead, it is the Father dwelling in me, performing his works. Um, And I want to say this is... uh, This example of perfect communion in Jesus's life on earth of perfect obedience and perfect submission is the reason why Jesus could do things like sleep on a boat in the middle of a storm with a whole bunch of screaming people who are freaking out about their lives, right? Um, Not because he says, well, as God, I can fix and I will take care of everything. But I can hand that off to God and I don't need to worry. And so in complete confidence that God the Father will watch over him, that God the Father will take care of him, that he doesn't need to do anything, um, right? He's able to sleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. Um, and maybe it's, it's helpful for us to, to, to think of things this way. Um, imagine that like you have to run a race, right? And so uh, it's something like, I don't know, you have to run like 20 miles in one hour. Um, and uh, you think, like, there's no way anybody can do, can do that. And uh, some guy shows up in his car, and he goes 20 miles in less than one hour. Right? You think, like, well, that's not really fair, right? He kind of had a leg up on me. He had an advantage, right? He had a car. I don't have a car. Um, there's a way that we can think that that's kind of what Jesus did, um, right? He got through life um, not by being fully obedient, not by adopting our human nature completely, but, but, but by kind of relying on his divine privileges, by relying on his divine power, rather than doing it in full trust and obedience with God. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that that's not what Jesus did. He fully and completely adopted the nature of a servant, right? He became made like us in every way, not just in one or two ways, but in every way, and yet he was without sin. He didn't use a car, but he still ran 20 miles in less than an hour, right? And what does that tell you? It tells you that he's the better person, right? He's the better runner. The person who can run 20 miles in one hour when you can't and doesn't use a car, doesn't do it because they have some sort of advantage, but they're able to do it because they're the better runner. Right? Jesus adopted our full humanity. He took on our nature, and yet he didn't sin. Why? Because he's the better person. Because he's better than us. Right? And it's not, it's not that he, uh, uh, he didn't completely adopt um, <clears throat> the commands of God, or didn't completely uh, submit himself to the Father, but kind of kept some of that divine prerogative, kind of kept a little advantage to it. Um, And so uh, this has really big implications, I think, for a passage that has often uh, been misunderstood. It's been misunderstood by me um, personally. Um, And this, again, ties into this thing of you need to know how to live as a human. Um, And so I want us to kind of take a second and look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 to 30. Um, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. Now, the way that I used to think about that was that Jesus had some sort of yoke that we needed to carry. It was his yoke, and he kind of laid it on us and says, take my yoke, do life my way, and you will find it easy and light. Um, But there's something else that's going on here, um, and that is that it's Jesus's yoke because he carried it. It's his yoke because it's the one that he was carrying, that he took on when he became human. It's not just one that he lays on others, but it's one that he laid on himself and he carried in perfection. And I haven't seen this expressed um, better by anybody uh, than George MacDonald. And so George MacDonald says, we must not imagine that when the Lord says, take my yoke upon you, he means a yoke which he lays on those that come to him. My yoke is the yoke he wears himself. The yoke his father lays upon him. The yoke out of which that same moment he speaks, bearing it with glad patience. Why is he bearing that yoke even when he's speaking there? Because he doesn't speak anything except what he hears from the father. That yoke of having to be perfectly 100% obedient to God. Of always acting under God's authority. Even when he's saying that, Jesus is carrying that yoke. Um, And so you must take on, uh, you must take on you the yoke I have taken. The Father lays it upon us. He says that to us as his brothers and sisters, as those who are in the same family as him. He says, what has been laid upon us humans is this perfect obedience to God. Um, And the Father puts it on us. And so he, bearing the same yoke with Jesus, the man learns to walk step for step with him, drawing, drawing the cart laden with the will of the Father of both and rejoicing with the joy of Jesus, right? What it is that we have to carry, what it is that we need to do to get through life is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus carried the same yoke that we have to carry through life. And what he calls is for us to enter into that yoke with him and to learn from him how to do that. Um, There's a good section in 1 John, um, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, where John says, This is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, right? That is the yoke. That is the burden that Jesus carried was perfect love for the God, for God expressed in perfect obedience for his commands. Um, Now, I imagine that, that probably there's a few of us that are shuddering at the thought of bearing that yoke, of bearing the yoke of perfect, absolute, without exception, obedience to God that we think, how is that possible? How is that something that's light? (laughs) How is that something that's not burdensome? Um, And so what I want to do for a second is I just want to try and talk about the story about us trying to find another yoke. You know, that's really what happens at the beginning of human history, right? At the fall, what happens is is that uh, Satan comes in and he tells us, um, he kind of issues in these... these, uh, 
these ideas of doubt that are meant to undermine what God says, right? And are meant to convince us that the yoke that God has put on us is something that's meant to hold us back, um, right? That we can take on this yoke, not of obedience, but of issuing commands, right? We don't follow God and obey him, but we can be like God. And uh, this, this is very much the language that's used. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, when you eat from the um, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You won't have to be a servant. You won't have to carry the yoke of a slave. You won't have to be somebody who has to live in this perfect obedience, but rather you will be like God and you can determine what is good and what is evil. You can determine how to live your life. And won't that be better for you? Won't that be easier for you to carry? Rather than having to go through life always submitting, always being perfectly obedient, you get to be the boss. You get to be the head honcho, and you can determine things for yourselves. Um, well, really, this story of, of trying to carry that yoke is a story of it crushing and breaking us. It is not a yoke that humans were ever meant to carry, to be able to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And we see all throughout the pages of history, this written large, right, of wars, of oppression, of murder, of lying, of selfishness, right? It's people that are trying to run their life, that are trying to carry the yoke of God and are being crushed underneath of it and broken. Um, the only yoke that you can carry is the yoke of perfect obedience, the one that Jesus took. Um, the one that was laid on him by the Father and that he carried in perfect obedience, submitting even to death on the cross, the most heinous and horrible of all deaths. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see here. I got a little behind in my notes section. All right, uh, so let's go back to George MacDonald. Um, there we go. Okay, so how should mortal man walk in such a yoke, this yoke of perfect obedience? Um, how can they do that, sayest thou, sayest you? Um, even with the Son of God bearing it also, does it still seem like something that's impossible? Um, right? Why, brothers and sisters, it is the only burden bearable. The great lie is that, one, you weren't meant to carry it, that the way hasn't been opened for you to carry it, and that there's a better life elsewhere, um, right? That's the great lie that Satan tried to push, push off. You can't carry God's yoke. You can't carry the yoke of issuing commands, but you can carry the yoke of obeying commands. That's what you were made for as a human. Um, and so it is vain to think that any weariness, however caused, any burden, however slight, may be got rid of otherwise than by bowing the neck to the yoke of the Father's will. There can be no other rest for heart and soul. And I want this to lead us into our discussion. Um, um, uh, 11.59, let's see here. Uh, how fast we can go through this. Um, right? Uh, I want this to lead us into our discussion about the unrest of the Israelites. Right? So that's the next section in Hebrews. 
um, that, that we're really going to look at and focus on. Um, if you look at the Israelites, um, uh, and especially their time in the desert is particularly instructive. What do they do? They fail, and 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 they fail some more. Um, right? And uh, what is it? God tells them to enter into the promised land. And what do they say? No, no, no. That's too tough. That's too hard. We can't do that. And because of disbelief and because of disobedience, they're sent back to the wilderness to wander for 40 years. Now, I want you to look at that section of, of Scripture, of the Israelites wandering through the, through the wilderness. And I want you to look at the book of Joshua, where the Israelites respond in obedience and faith and go into the promised land. And you tell me which one is easier. You tell me which one was tougher. Um, right? The life of disobedience to God or the life of obedience to God? The life of trust that God can take care of these giants, whatever they look like, however fortified their cities are, that he can do that if we will just obey and submit to him. Or the life where we start determining what we can and can't and what we will and won't do. Um, and uh, it's, it's very instructive, I think, for us to look at the temptation of Jesus, um, right? What is it? Uh, Jesus goes off into the desert. He goes into the wilderness, the same place that the Israelites do. Um, and what's the first thing that uh, Satan tempts Jesus with is bread, um, right? This need for sustenance. And um, he says, right, your God, use your power, um, right? Do something. You need food. You make it yourself. As God, you can do it, right? Can't you? Um, and what does Jesus say? I don't need to do that. I can perfectly uh, kind of cross my arms and do a trust fall back into the Father. If I need bread, he will give me bread. I can count on him to do it. And what does Jesus respond with? He responds with scripture and he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8 references back to Exodus 16, and it's when the Israelites complain about not having bread. They complain about not having food. God, aren't you going to do something for us? Um, right? And so where the Israelites failed, Jesus succeeds. It wasn't that Jesus didn't have to have bread. It wasn't that Jesus didn't get hungry. He adopted our nature. He went through the same things that we did, but he did it without failing. The same thing is true of the next one, of testing, of questioning, of doubting God, right? If God's really with you, won't he save you? Won't he protect you? Um, is he really there with you? Why don't you test and make sure and see? And this cause of belief and, and doubt, right? And again, uh, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this time. It references the next chapter in Exodus, right? Where the Israelites question whether God is with them or not. Is he really with us at Massah? Um, and where the Israelites fails, Jesus succeeds. It wasn't that Jesus was exempted from going through what they went through. And it wasn't that Jesus somehow used his divine prerogatives to get through it. Right? But he gets through it the same way that, that the Israelites should have gotten through it. By trust and belief in God. Um, same thing for false gods. What happens later in Exodus? The Israelites make a, a, a golden calf, right? They make an idol. They bow down to it. They give in, seeking power, seeking control. Um, they do that. Jesus again, uh, can you guess what he does? Quotes from Deuteronomy, which references Exodus, um, right? Where, where humans, where everybody else has failed, Jesus succeeds. 
And so I think we can see that this need for rest that's kind of depicted in the life of the Israelites is true in your life, and it's true in my life, right? Don't you feel this need for rest, right? That there's this weariness that has come along from us trying to run and do life on our own, um, right? From not adopting the yoke that the Father has set beside us. And what the author of Hebrews does really well is kind of point out that what prohibits rest, what is responsible for this weariness is unbelief and disobedience, and that those are really two sides of the same coin. Um, And uh, so in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, we see that they, those people who disobeyed, were not able to enter because of their unbelief. They weren't able to enter into the promised land. They weren't able to enter into God's rest because of their their disbelief. God isn't keeping them from rest as a form of punishment for their disbelief. Their disbelief and their disobedience is them staying outside of God's place of rest. Uh, And I'm going to, let's see here. There we go. All right. I'm going to try and go through this as as quick as I can. Um, And what the author of Hebrews then starts talking about is this idea of Jesus being the great high priest. And it's important for us to understand what it is that priests are. There's a series of requirements that it's laid out in Hebrews um, for what a priest must be. A priest has to be human. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest is selected from among men. Jesus meets that, right? He became one of us. Um, chosen, no one takes this honor upon himself, right? Jesus doesn't say, as God, I get to be high priest, but he learns in full submission and obedience to God, and God bestows that upon him as an honor. He's a representative appointed to represent mankind in matters related to God, and the high priest is, is someone who gives gifts to God on behalf of men and who gives sacrifices to God on behalf of men. Um, and Jesus is, is the person who does that exactly. He's the priest who meets our need. Um, and uh, Jesus is made a priest not by a rule about ancestry, right? Um, so in the Old Testament, uh, we won't get into the specifics of it, um, right? All of the priests wind up coming from the tribe of Levi. Um, uh, but Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah, where no other priests come from. So what is it that makes him to be a priest? Well, it's on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Why is his life indestructible? Because he always acts in full obedience and submission to God the Father. Um, And so God sets up a new covenant. He places aside the old and he sets up a new one. A new one with Jesus as the high priest. Um, And uh, the author of Hebrews points out that there's a number of problems with the old covenant. It was weak and useless. He says it wasn't the real deal in several sections, right? It was just a copy. It was just a shadow. Um, the, the, uh, uh, The priest of that time didn't go into the real temple. They went into a temple in Israel. What did Jesus do? He went into the real thing. He went directly um, into the temple of God in heaven. It didn't make people perfect. 
It only dealt with ignorance and didn't disclose the way to God. If you look at the Old Testament, one of the things that you'll see is all of the sacrifices for sin were sacrifices for sins that were committed in ignorance, willful, knowing sin. There was no sacrifice for that. There was only death and stoning. Um, right? And so, uh, yes, we have a real problem with ignorance. But boy, we have a real serious guilt. We have a real serious problem because we've sinned not in ignorance, but in will. Um, right? And so uh, the Old Testament wasn't something that was able to deal with that. And that's why it couldn't clear people's consciences. Um, but this new covenant, this new plan is just what we needed. It's the real deal. We have a priest who meets our needs, someone who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted to the, and exalted to the heavens. Um, we have a, a priest who has walked the walk, right? Because a priest must be selected from men, he's somebody who has lived as one of us. Um, and so his perfection opens the door for humanity to enter into God's presence. Whereas the way to God's presence had not yet been disclosed in the old covenant, in the new covenant, it has been disclosed. It's through submission and obedience to Jesus Christ and through um, adopting him as our Lord, through belief and faith in him. Um, and so we have a high priest who sympathizes and is gentle with us but was also subject to weakness and temptation, but did it without sin, um, right? He didn't get through on his own prerogatives. Um, and so as a, as a priest or mediator, Jesus aims at reconciliation. Um, and I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. Um, the great thing is that Jesus, after having run the race, after having done stuff perfectly, he doesn't stand back in condemnation against you and me and say, well, I did it. Why can't you do it? He adopts the role of a priest, of a mediator between God and men, right? And he, uh, he offers us forgiveness, and he also calls for us to walk alongside of him and to become like him. Um, and so I just kind of want to close with asking us, um, are you weary? Have you fought taking on Jesus's yoke? Are there areas of your life where you've tried to keep um, this perfect obedience to God and his rules, kind of at arm's length, right? Um, <clears throat> we must run to him. We must run to Christ. He's the person who shows us how to live, how to get through things. Um, <clears throat> and in Christ, hidden in him is our life and our rest and our salvation, um, and so I think uh, uh, it's good to like kind of close on like a few practical points. Um, I want to say that, uh, right, this idea of like looking at Jesus, learning from him how to be like him. Um, there's a few things that we can do. First of all, I, I think prayer, um, right? Uh, that's consulting the expert on human life, which is Jesus. He's done it. He knows how to do it. He knows what your weakness is. And he will deal with you gently. And he will enable you to overcome whatever it is that's going there. So it's important that you consult the expert, right? If you're going to build a deck, if you're going to build a house, if you're going to do anything complicated, what would you do? You would consult experts on how to do it. You're going to live a life. You need to consult the expert on how to do it. You need to do that every day. You need to be listening and talking to him. 
um, the Bible, right? That's the story um, of Jesus' words. It gives the picture of his life, and it talks about his followers, the people who learn from him, right? We need to be paying attention to what he did, to what he said, and to what he taught. Um, And then lastly, that still small voice. Expect him to speak to you and teach you. That's his role as priest, is to talk to you, to talk to God, to intercede on behalf for you. Um, And so it's very important, I think, that we listen to that still small voice. What is it that he's been telling you you need to do? What is it that he's been pointing out that you've been slow to obey Um, right, that you've been slow to adopt his yoke, that you've thought some other way of handling things will be much better and much easier, Um, right, but it's really been what's been leading to death. Um, So uh, I I thank you so much for your patience. Uh, Sorry I went over a little bit, um, and uh, I'll pray, and then I'll uh, dismiss us with with the doxology. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much um, for your love for us and your kindness towards us. Lord, we thank you for coming and showing us how to live. Lord, we love you and we worship you as fully and perfectly God. Lord, we ask that you would make us your um, brothers and sisters to become like you. Lord, that you would help us um, to adopt the yoke that you carried. Lord, that you would help us to put our faith and trust in you and in the Father and to know that in you is our life and to not try and run things on our own. Lord, I just ask that you would be with us throughout the week and that you would help all of us to grow and to become more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, And uh, now I just want to read the, the doxology from Jude. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.